Busy day ahead. Why not save time and shop online at supervalue.ie? Let our expert pickers do the shopping for you and our helpful drivers deliver it when you get home. Download the Supervalue app now or shop online at supervalue.ie. Taking stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. On today's programme, with warnings that inflation levels are likely to accelerate next year, we'll take a look at the factors that are driving the rise of prices at national and global level. Turn off your Zoom because Ireland Events Bureau aims to attract €1 billion from global conferencing. And we'll cross to the UK to examine a giant government mega fund for business, which supports everything from alcoholic teas to a new talent agency for social media influencers. But to start us off today, businesses are getting back on their feet following the pandemic, but energy prices and consumer prices are both surging and we have major disruptions in the global supply chain. So what can we expect and what does this mean for Ireland's and indeed the global economic recovery post-COVID? To discuss this, I'm joined on the line by Nick Bullman, who's founder and chairman of Czech Risk. Nick, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Mandy. Now, Nick, back in February, as part of the Czech Risk Early Warning System, you were looking uh, to the horizon for potential long-term changes in the investment environment, and you highlighted a risk at that time. You said that central banks and their ability to manoeuvre was being reduced due to two things. One was the ultra-low interest rate environment and the quantitative easing policies that they had. And at that time, you called it their emperor has no clothes moment. What are your thoughts on how things stand now? Well, I think they, they've uh, nailed themselves to a cross, you know, as we were saying in February. So that view hasn't changed at all, Mandy. And I think, obviously, if you create the amount of liquidity that's been created since 2008, actually, I think there's 73 trillion of new debts been uh, created since that time. Inevitably, you run into inflation problems. And in the history of central banks, um, you've never actually seen a central bank getting ahead of inflation. They're always slightly behind or very behind. And that's what's happening at the moment. So there's a sort of loss of confidence in the ability of central banks to to do things like control inflation at the moment. And and if you look at their policies and what they were trying to do uh, in the pandemic, which was to keep the interest rates low to try and stimulate growth in the economy, do you think that that's failed? Well, I think I, I think that as we've come out of, you know, some of the growth rate that's come out post-COVID uh, was obviously very sharp because the, the decline had also been very sharp. So the numbers looked very, very positive initially. What we're seeing now is a slowing uh, or decelerating uh, growth within the Eurozone and most of the world. And you'll see inflation rate rising. And, and the reason for that is, as you said earlier, supply side constraints, um, energy costs. And the central banks, uh, uh, this is the, the Fed, the Bank of England, the ECB, the Central Bank of Ireland, are all maintaining the view that these inflationary costs are spikes and are transitory. Uh, we do not believe that. We think mm. there's um, much more sticky inflation uh, working its way into the system. And that inevitably means that central banks will get behind and that when they do react, they'll have to raise interest rates faster and further than they would have liked to otherwise. And that's very serious for business, obviously. 
Obviously, and it's it's looming large on the European Council meeting this weekend, in fact, and there's some very difficult and big decisions to be made by the EU, by the UK and the US, as you say, in the coming weeks. Um, but it's a it's a very difficult balance, isn't it, to strike between withdrawing monetary and, and fiscal stimulus without choking off the, the recovery? It is. and but, but again, you know, what I would say is in February, we pointed it out that this is a, a cross that they've nailed themselves mm. to. And it's a cross of their own making. And um, and so the sooner I think central bank policy changes and recognizes that inflation is not transitory, that it's much stickier and much more embedded in the system, um, the better, because obviously then they can react earlier and, and make the changes. But they just don't want to do that for fear of choking off the economy. But you've got to make you know, that that's a problem that, you know, this is the quintessential problem for central banks is you have to make a decision one way or the other. And having been so loose in terms of fiscal policy for the last 10 years, um, they're now rather, you know, looking down the barrel of the consequences of that. And I think the thing to remember is that, you know, energy prices, for example, um, are, are above their 10-year average. Um, they, they represent a massive amount of the, of the consumer price index in Europe. And there's absolutely no sign of those energy prices abating. And the reason they're not going to abate is because, you know, if we go into a cold winter, you've already got supply constraints. You've got um, the whole of the EU having demands for uh, gas and, and energy mm. prices mm. rising. Mm. Um, so it's going to be very, I think we've, we're set for quite a difficult winter where we may see rationing, we may see um, power cuts, we may see all sorts of things that would endanger the policy of of central banks and cause them to have a knee-jerk reaction. And of course, that's the things markets fear most. Yeah, and, and just on that issue of energy, there were hints, though, this week that Russia might release more supplies if Europe or Germany specifically were, were in a position to approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, just underscoring their chokehold on the, uh, the energy issue. But do you think something might happen there that could ease prices quickly and, and deal with that supply issue? Not really, because, um, well, first of all, the Nord Stream gas pipeline is full and ready to go. I think obviously there's a political constraint that Germany doesn't want to be seen to be kowtowing to to Russia for its um, for its energy needs. Um, I think Russia will be more than happy to step in um, and 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 negotiate at a time uh, when it's required. Um, but even if um, that that uh, that supply became much freer, if we have a cold winter or a, uh, a winter with no wind, then the then and the combination of those two would be would be really bad for energy prices and uh, for consumers generally. I, it's very difficult to see how the demand could be met with the current supply. So I think you know for somewhere like Ireland, for example, if we were to have a very cold winter with um, with uh, less less strong winds than usual, then obviously the dependence for, uh, of Ireland on wind wind energy um, uh, being relatively high would then put sort of pressure imbalances between Ireland and the UK in terms of their energy requirements and their energy needs. So I think there's there's a whole host of um, risks that we've identified that could actually be quite serious for, for the winter coming. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Nick Bullman, founder and chairman of Check Risk. Yes, and we've seen many warnings in Ireland from um, the Commissioner for Regulations on Utilities and also Airgrid about that supply issue uh, here in Ireland. So it's something that is looming large. Uh, you mentioned Germany 
there a moment ago uh, in relation to the geopolitical, I suppose, relationship they have with Russia. But looking at something um, that happened in Germany uh, last week in relation to wages, uh, I saw a a particular German, a quite large German trade union asking for a 5.3% wage increase. Is wages something that's registering on the radar for you in terms of inflationary pressures? As, a, as, a, as an emerging risk, absolutely. And what we've seen is that the initial surge of inflation has come from supply-side concerns, which you mentioned right at the start. So, for example, in Germany and in France, Renault and various other car manufacturers are having real problems sourcing uh, chips, mic- microchips for cars, and that's causing a major delay in production. And that obviously pushes prices up. It means that um, that companies that are producing um, uh, Uh, cars uh, are finding that the manufacturing pipeline is very slow. At the same time, you have inflation rising. And of course, that's not being met Mm. by wage price inflation. It's also happening at a time when when, uh, employment's at relatively high levels. We're very nearly full employment uh, in the US and uh, and elsewhere around the world, and particularly Europe and the UK. We're, we're, you know, relatively high in terms of employment levels. And what that does is it means that the cost of living has risen, but people aren't matching it with, uh, with wages. And so inevitably, these, these wage, these wage uh, price inflation starts to come in as, uh, as, as workers begin to realize they're just not keeping up with the inflationary demands. Mm. And when you've got things like energy prices rising as sharply as they are, 17.3% in the last um, quarter or so, you suddenly have this massive sort of dislocation between what's out there on the street and what people are feeling mm. and what they're getting in their pocket at the end of the month or the end of the week. Yeah, and, and that's a big issue, really. You've got the conflation of all those issues that are driving inflation. And yet, on the other hand, um, we're seeing or we're being told that there's a much better outcome on the macroeconomic front than we might have envisaged before the pandemic uh, first struck. So... That's aligned, though, to concerns around personal finances. Does this point to a disconnect between the two, like a boom in economy, but a bothered consumer? Yes, I think that there's this sort of Goldilocks approach that uh, central banks are taking, that everything will be manageable and um, and that they'll be able to manage. You know, In a sense, the amount of debt that they've created, they do need some inflation to actually reduce mm. the debt burden. So that, you know, from an economic perspective, that makes sense. The problem is that inflation is a tiger that's very, very difficult to control once it's out of the cage. And uh, as I said earlier, I, I don't know in the in the history of it that um, that central banks have really been able to catch up that quickly. And so there's a real possibility that we enter what's called a stagflationary environment where you have a very slow-growing economy in Europe and elsewhere uh, whilst inflation is rising, which is very sort of reminiscent of the the 1970s. And obviously that was a time when suddenly, you know, when they had to cope with with rising inflation, interest rates rose very, very sharply and that caused uh, quite a steep recession. So I'd say they've got a, you know, as we said in February of, of, of this year at Check Risk, they've got, they've, they've, hoisted themselves on their own petard and now they're they're struggling to find their way out and we personally can't see a graceful exit from this just coming back to that issue you spoke of earlier where there's a sort of a a wait and see who moves first on the the interest rates issue closer to home we learned this week that the inflation in the uk could rise above 5.3% 
5% early next year, according to the new chief economist at the Bank of England. So that's a very uncomfortable place for a central bank where an inflation target of 2% was set. Does this mean that we could see increases in their rates as early as November? I think it's inevitable that, you know, whether it's November or, or, or later in the year, uh, is a moot point, but I, you know the the direction is absolutely clear that um, that the UK is going to is is suffering supply constraints um, that are going to spill over into into the into wage price inflation. And the housing market remains very very strong. There's too little stock with too much money chasing it. So some of the central components of the inflationary figures and inflationary forecasts are on a one-way street at the moment. And so the Bank of England at some point is going to have to react to that by raising interest rates. And, you know, the question is, is how gently can they do that? And the problem is if you let inflation run away, you then have to start making bigger and bigger mm. corrections. And that's what scares markets. So we, we feel it's going to be a very, very tough uh, six months um, to go. We think that, you know, just from a practical sense for investors, that the short term, uh, end or short-term bonds are going to be are going to come under a lot of pressure, and then actually you're almost better holding cash uh, in the very short term than you would be holding short-term bonds. Equity markets are going to react um, variously. Uh, they're going to try and read um, how much central banks are going to have to move, and you know our sense on that is that um, the Goldilocks approach, you know, just can't. It isn't likely to play out. It's very unlikely that as a base case that central banks are going to be able to control this neatly and therefore you know we expect markets to become quite volatile over the next six months. And so if there were moves to introduce an interest rate hike in the UK how quickly do you think the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank would be to move after that? Well I think uh, obviously they're going to be very they're going to be relatively concerned um, about uh, exchange rates. So they're going to want to watch that uh, exchange rates don't get too uh, uh, unbalanced. I suspect we'll see the US move first, though. And mm. I think um, that could happen as early as November. And once the US has started to um, taper, um, they'll watch what markets are doing, and then they'll they'll all jump on the same bandwagon. They have absolutely no choice, in our opinion, on that. Um, if markets take a fright, that'll be the time when um, when it'll be really interesting to see what the next reaction is because central banks so far have sort of acted as the the uh, the bin of last resort we call it which is you know just to say that they'll be there to put more cash into the markets to try and um, keep volatility down and, and support equity markets but you know at some point they have to stop doing that and reintroduce some sort of uh, proper market risk and proper market pricing and uh, so they really have made got themselves in quite quite a bind i think that's the the central message and for consumers um yeah we think it's going to get tougher you know you're already seeing sort of um, uh, supply constraints hitting uh, uh, christmas shopping all the, all those sorts of things are going to be delayed um, and then obviously the bigger the bigger issue is is really the energy situation which really doesn't look like unwinding do you see a growing role for governments to intervene um, if the central banks are not going to be effective in managing inflation? Um, do you see that governments have to step in now and, and do more to to take a role in that for consumers and to manage the their own economies in a better way? 
Yes, I do. And I, uh, but I think there's a danger in that too. Mm. The, the independence mm. of central banks has already come into question. Mm. And I think, you know, the Fed has looked much less independent, as has the Bank of England, as has the ECB over the last, you know, three years and have been given more and more power to politicians in terms of fiscal policy. Um, what I could see happening is that um, governments will start having to have uh, spending programs in terms of infrastructure, in terms of direct investment mm. into the economies. And I think that's that's almost inevitable. But there is a concern in our mind that are politicians really the best people to run an economy? And that's, you know, I'm not trying to be too disparaging about uh, politicians who I'm sure try their best, but, you know, it, there there is a reason for central bank independence mm. is to stop politicians just spending so they can get reelected and um you know there is a real concern that we've 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 got ourselves into a bit of a pickle with that yeah and unfortunately though for politicians nobody blames the central bank when their personal circumstances are affected so it's it's the politicians who ultimately bear a lot of the brunt when things like this can run out of hand for households can i just ask you one question uh, about the low um, interest policy again and the longevity of that. Um, it was designed in the first instance, I suppose, to to stimulate spending and business yeah. um, and to support households. But essentially, that hasn't worked. It, it, it's it's certainly in Ireland, it's become more and more wedded to savings uh, rather than spending. And, you know, Irish Irish banks have amassed billions in, in customers' deposits over COVID in particular. So, do you think that the policy needs a kind of fundamental relook, having long-term low deposit interest rates? Yes, I think that you know when you get close, very strange things start to happen when mm. you get interest rates either at zero or negative, because you can't you can't stimulate the economy more. The, the zero rate interest bound is um, is one of the really interesting area of economics because because people don't marginally spend more at that point; mm. they actually save. And they don't borrow more either. They don't tend to go out and, and take on big, big loans because they're worried about what happens when interest rates start to rise again. So there's quite some quite interesting human behavioral aspects surrounding um, consumers and investors' views of zero, of zero interest rates. And you end up having, as a central bank, you know, if that starts to fail, you have to start finding new and innovative ways to get people to spend and even those can be you know like helicopter money mm. or um in in denmark there are there are time, there are areas where mortgages are actually being um paid by by the mortgage lender at the moment so you're actually being paid to take on a mortgage and you know those things can only be temporary you know at some point you have to have a, a reset and so i get increasingly worried when i see um, central banks or politicians uh, fiddling about at the margins mm. because it's very indicative that the, the policy itself is failing. So I think you're right there. So should someone um, who's borrowing at the moment, just say for a house and taking out a mortgage, should should they do that on a variable rate or should they take a long-term fixed rate? What's the best strategy in this environment? Well, I think in this environment, um, and obviously they must, they must take advice from their mortgage advisors, etc. But, you know, our view would be that um, fixing rates is incredibly important at the moment because interest rate volatility is going to be something 
that's going to be quite concerning over the next uh, six months to a year and potentially beyond as we go into the sort of taper environment, which is inevitable. They have to taper at some point. Um, so I would be, I would definitely be looking to fix rates for as long as possible, work out what you can afford, um, what it will actually cost you for that period, and and then just, just fix that rate because the risk of not doing so is that you're going to be faced with variable rate increases, which could be quite sharp. So why we have you here and you're willing to give us some free advice. Can I ask you this, as interest rates rise, should people invest in bonds or stocks? What's the best investment strategy for small investors at the moment? Well, I think it's very sectorally based. So so it's not, unfortunately, one can't just say equities or bonds. I think there are um, equities in a in a in a uh, in an inflationary environment tend to do quite well and there are certain sectors that tend to do quite well so consumer staples um oil you know our mm. view is that oil and energy will remain very strong even with the switch towards um ESG and sort of the the SDG um or, or environmentally friendly companies which will inv- inevitably happen too um and then in terms of, uh, of bonds, you know, my view is that, in the sh- you know, you'd want to be going for longer, uh, sort of mid, mid, mid-dated bonds rather than short-dated bonds because they, they tend to get hit. And I'd also be looking at corporate bonds over government bonds because I think as interest rates rise, governments will be having to seek new debt finance because their debt, you know, the, the debt load they currently have is enormous. So uh, we'd stick more with the corporate uh, bonds, high-quality corporate bonds. And uh, and as I said, certain sectors within the market like uh, energy, like uh, consumer staples. Uh, so, Nick, it looks like the options available to central bankers are fewer and fewer. And the issue of inflation will be a big one for governments to try and tackle themselves through policy interventions. As you say, we'll all watch this space with interest. That was Nick Bullman of Check Risk. Nick, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Now, when we think of tourism in Ireland, we tend to think of leisure tourism. That's when people come here just for a holiday. But business tourists come here for a completely different reason. They come to attend international conferences and corporate meetings. It's a very highly specialised and lucrative sector. And I'm joined now to examine the business model by Simon Johnston, who's no relation, but who is manager of Ireland's Convention Bureau. Sam, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on, Mandy. Sam, before we talk about what your future plans for the conferencing and convention businesses, could you talk us through uh, what Ireland was doing in this space before the pandemic happened? Vulture Ireland, um, under its Meet in Ireland and Dublin Convention Bureau brands, has been selling Ireland as a destination for business events for quite some time. And we we have a very strong track record in it. I mean, the value, to try and put a number on it, um, you know, the value to the economy was up to 716 million euro per year uh, before the pandemic hit, before the industry was shut down. And that, you know, we sustained somewhere around 20,000 jobs to that level. Um, so we were we were bringing in association conferences, we were bringing in corporate meetings, we were bringing in incentive programs as well. So we, you know, we were we're certainly a, gl- a global player in the field, and we and we do uh, punch very very well uh, in comparison to the size of the country, as Ireland does in ma- in many respects, as you know. Um, but yeah, we, we'd see be seen as a global player within the industry. And obviously, you've got big plans for the future. And when you're out there trying to sell Ireland as a location for conventions and conferences, what are our unique selling points? 
it depends on, on, you know, whether it is one of those association conferences, the corporate meetings and incentives. But to give you an idea, I suppose, you know, we've in the past, we've played on our, our air access. So we very much welcome the, the supports announced in last week's budget to help with, you know, reinstate all those air routes again, because that is key. It's, you know, to make us a destination that's easy to get into, but also that we're a destination that, that is easy to do business with and a destination that wants to do business with our clients. So we, we tell the story of our people, um, of those who will deliver the events, but also the, the local knowledge experts. So many, many of them are global thought leaders in their fields, and we call them our conference ambassadors. And with them, we go forward um, in the bid process. And those bid pro processes can take place either on a European scale or on a world stage. And we use, I suppose, a combination of their expertise in the subject matter that, you know, that they work in or that they, they live in um, and our own bidding prowess. And could you talk us to us a little bit about the value of what you're hoping to attract over the next three years, say? Yeah, the, you know, it's, I suppose we, we have, I, I go beyond the three years, if you don't mind, because we're working in, in such long timelines, like we're working out as far as 2032, so beyond the decade at the minute. Um, you know, we've we've almost a billion euro worth of business on the books at the minute. Um, a mix of what is confirmed, um, alongside those that we have actually that were in active bids with, and others where we've started the conversations with our planners, uh, but we actually haven't got the specification from them yet. We're waiting to go into that bid process. So yeah, it's it's you know it's a billion euro um over the next eleven years is is the potential of of what we have on the books at present, and we're still working obviously to to continue to grow that pipeline. Well, um, we've talked a little bit about Ireland and we're also uh, very lucky today to be joined by Catherine Calamidas from Rotterdam. Catherine is from the Rotterdam Partners Convention Bureau. Catherine, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Catherine, you've heard from Sam there a little bit about what Ireland is doing. Could you talk to us uh, about how it happens in other cities and, and a bit about your experience in Rotterdam and how you've approached this market? Yeah, definitely. Um, we do approach the convention market along sector lines, uh, now more so than ever before. So that means we, we look at what our strengths are and we try to identify the congresses, uh, especially scientific congresses, that match um, the profile the best. It's that simple. Our, our investment colleagues acquire companies that match and bolster specific sectors, and the Convention Bureau focuses keenly on those congresses that match the city's strengths, but also the ambitions, because we think that acquiring such congresses, we create a sort of positive spin-off, which is beyond the economic value, which is significant, as Sam just uh, explained, because our, our numbers are along the same lines uh, for the entirety of the Netherlands, um, but also will have a lasting impact on the lives of locals, on, on the Dutch population, the Rotterdam population, because we think there's a trickle-down effect. What's good for the knowledge cluster and the industrial cluster will eventually bolster the general economy and well-being of a, of a specific location. So a, a good example is that uh, Rotterdam and the Netherlands have an ambition for the energy transition. So bidding on and winning and hosting the World Energy Congress, which is a fact for 2025, becomes an accelerator for achieving that goal. So that's good for the industry, the, the energy sector and maritime and all of those related sectors, the knowledge cluster, but also good for the people.
Yeah, and I suppose that brings us to a little dichotomy, if you like. There's been a major shift towards sustainability across all sectors and all businesses in recent years. So um, one thing that will surely impact uh, one of the selling points of business tourism is how do uh, companies square the circle in terms of embracing, embracing sustainability with international travel? Is that something that you've come up against? For sure. We all have. We're all struggling with this uh, because our industry is is very closely associated with travel, with passion for place as well, because delegates want to travel. They want to, number one, they want to see each other in person. Uh, That's how they build community. Uh, But they also want to share experiences in new locations. And so the attractiveness of the destination is important, but you also need to get there. So uh, in the case of Rotterdam, we're quite lucky. We're very accessible by train from from four or five countries, um, which is a sustainable way to travel. But it goes beyond that. It's also about your sustainability proposition within your location, within your city. Um, is your public transport sustainable? Is it organized well enough to make it the default way of getting around for the delegate? Are your partners sustainable? Are their practices sustainable? Is the city's urban landscape sustainable? Do you have green rooftops? Um, there are so many factors. And you also need to be able to tell the story well as to why your destination is sustainable. Uh, because it is now not just a nice-to-have, it is a must-have for a lot of the clients that are looking at destinations. Yeah, and Catherine, getting there is one thing, but in a post-COVID in, uh, environment, uh, how do you actually manage and operate conventions? So things like antigen testing. Could you talk us through some of the challenges that face people who are now hosting conventions and conferences at a large scale? Yeah, it's it's a it's still a hot topic uh, um, at all events which are about educating and knowledge sharing about conferencing. Uh, I can tell you that in Rotterdam or in the Netherlands, we had, uh, and we were the first country, I think, to do it, we had field lab events. Mm. It, this was an effort um, by uh, government, uh, by the scientists, and by the events industry to layer processes and knowledge and facts and figures over each other to find the right way to host events safely. And uh, they were able to do this. They did a test across, I believe, seven events in total, all different kinds of events, from a cabaret to a conference to a football match, all the way up to and including Eurovision, because Eurovision was also a field lab event. Um, so the antigen testing was in place. The QR codes were in place for your, the proof that you're vaccinated or that you have a negative test result. Um, safe practices were employed at the venue. Uh, city tours, because of course with Eurovision, the delegations that come in want to experience the destination. Those were all done using processes and procedures which were deemed to be safe. And they were right, because with, um, I think it was three and a half thousand live audience members times nine shows, um, I I don't know the exact number, but it's under 10 um, assumed infections. Wow. Under 10. So it is possible. You have probably a greater chance at the peak of COVID, you probably had a greater chance of catching it in the supermarket than attending one of these events. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Sam Johnston and Catherine Kalimedas. Sam, can I just come back to you for a second? Um, assuming that we're successful and we start to get this business back here in Ireland uh, and attract these major, major conferences again, what does an average business person spend when they're here in Dublin or around uh, Ireland and who ultimately benefits from that spend? Um, the spend from a, a business delegate is around €1,650 Euro, uh, from, from each one of them. 
and that's around three times higher than a leisure tourist. So they're a high yield segment within tourism back into the economy. And who get you know they're spending right across the ecosystem of of, of the tourism uh, businesses. So they are Monday. So obviously accommodation, uh, but food and drink you know, gets a large proportion of that, but also goes into internal transport. And sorry, that's sixteen hundred and fifty does not include getting here. So it doesn't include airfares or or any other ways of getting here. That's on the ground spend. So the internal transport, maybe taxis or public transport. Shopping gets a good percentage of the spend, as does evening entertainment. So it they you know they spend right across um, uh, the tourism services. And is it purely a Dublin centric market and larger cities, or is there anything for the regional outreach in this one? There's very much yeah, it's it's very much regional. Um, and obviously a focus of Falchard is regionality. Like over the last six or seven years uh, we have had service level agreements with with the four other convention bureau across the country so cork Kerry, shannon region and galway so falchar gives you know logistical practical and financial supports to help them to to generate opportunity business tourism opportunities and as well as that to convert so you know you've obviously you've cities in there but you also have the the rural parts of the country as you know of those regions as well benefiting and not just regionality but seasonality so business tourism does tend to come outside mm-hmm. of the peak tourism period so it, it helps extend the season and as i say the higher spend is um is also a welcome return to the economy indeed catherine i might come back to you for a second um uh, we've we've talked a little bit about ireland and i know with that besides your work in, in rotterdam you're also on the steering group for european cities can you talk to us about cities that you think do this really well and where our stiffest competition might be coming from yeah, well, hopefully we won't be calling it competition in the future because right now cooperation is the key, and that's why that steering group is so excellent because we we learn from each other and support each other so well. But if I was to zoom in on Ireland, I, I myself have actually organised a small congress in Ireland quite a few years ago in Tralee, um, and and I can tell you the reason we picked it. We picked Ireland because of what we perceived as being a sort of intriguing merging of local culture with the country's drive to innovate. And that was actually represented by the commitment of Enterprise Ireland at the time. They brought local industry on board as exhibitors and so forth. It was compelling enough to pull us off the beaten track and go for a smaller locale like Tralee instead of, for example, Dublin. Sorry, Sam. (laughs) But um, because it offered us enough to see and do within a reasonable distance from the meeting venue. And I think this is this is still true. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about passion for place. Um, Place making in Ireland is fantastic. Uh, why wouldn't a delegate want to attend a conference in Ireland? And and we think that the delegate experience is going to be key in the future. The conversion of the virtual delegate to a live delegate is going to depend on what the value proposition is in the locality. And and that's where we need to pull out all the stops and really show off not just what our industry is and our knowledge is, but what our culture is. And Ireland has that in spades. Okay, well, we'll watch this space with interest. Very happy to learn that Kerry is the centre of the tourism <laughs> capital for Europe. Uh, Catherine, thank you for that. Um, and whilst you're in competition with each other, it's always good to collaborate, as you say, where it's possible Absolutely. and to learn from each other. So we leave it there. That's Sam Johnston from Dublin and Catherine kelly Madas from Rotterdam. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you so much.
Now, UK companies can benefit from a government venture capital fund that's supporting uh, companies with financial difficulties due to the coronavirus. It's called Future Fund and it's being delivered via the British Business Bank. Here to tell us all about it is Chris Cook from the Financial Times. Chris, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks ever so much for having me. It's a very strange scheme. (laughs) Indeed, I I really enjoyed your piece. You and your colleague uh, Max Harlow have done a lot of work examining the applications for Future Fund. And uh, from what I'm reading, it hasn't always been easy to get the information. But before we look at uh, that aspect of the scheme, can you just explain to our listeners what exactly the Future Fund is? Sure. So the principle of the Future Fund, um, which is no longer sort of taking taking, uh, applications, was that during the pandemic, at the beginning, the height of the pandemic, the uh, early stage companies that would normally rely on venture capital couldn't get cash in the way they normally could. And actually, they, they find it quite hard to get conventional bank loans and things too. So the government stepped in and said, basically, if you can get a, uh, if you are as an early stage company, can get another private investor to invest in you, then the UK government will match that money so that there's just a bit more cash flushing around uh, for early stage companies. And they, they, they started off by saying it'd be a few hundred million pounds. It ended up over a billion um, and around 1,100 companies uh, ended up in the fund. Uh, the, the way it sort of works is the government basically lends you money for uh, what are basically exorbitant rates, but you don't actually have to pay the exorbitant rates if um, you hold a, uh, a new capital raising process. So you basically sell new shares to new investors. At that moment, the UK government will then turn its loan into new shares. So sort of the idea is really they'll give you money to tide you over till you're able to issue new shares to find new investors, and then the government will come alongside those new investors. The idea is basically if these are good companies, the UK government will end up owning stakes in very large numbers of them. Yeah, I've looked through the website at some of the companies. Can you just tell us a little bit about who is eligible to apply for this first and then we'll take a look at what type of applications have come in? So the idea was basically it was really for early stage UK companies. There were some exceptions so that you could be based abroad so long as you're really functionally a UK company and basically did most of your business in Mm -hmm. Britain. Um, and uh, you had to have had a bit of capital raising before. So you had to have a little bit of a track record of finding new investors. And as I said before, the, the way it worked was that the government relied on you finding a, a new outside investor to sort of match the funding of. Mm. So the government itself didn't do any due diligence. They relied on these third-party investors. These new investors were going to come in alongside them to do the due diligence for them. Um, and as long as the this third-party external investor was asking for tough enough terms that the government could live with, it would, you know, it would match the funding. Yeah, and can you give us an idea of some of the companies who managed to actually secure that type of funding? So if you ask the UK Treasury, so it's, they're really, really secretive about who these companies are. And the idea is, it's sort of, from their perspective, they say, oh, well, you know, it's very important that companies are able to access these sort of support schemes without the stigma of, of it being revealed that they've had to go for help. But it's pretty silly because, first of all, if they are successful and the government does actually take stakes in them, then it will actually become public because they'll have to list who their shareholders are. Mm. But the other thing is it's public money, right? So that was our starting position. This is public money and we have a right to really know who it is that the, that the, treasury, is, um, that the treasury is supporting. Um, we know that the, the companies are overwhelmingly in London. So there's a, an enormous bias towards, uh, towards not just London, but central London as well. Um, 
it's a real, um, it's not a leveling up uh, uh, bit of um, policy making to use the mm. favourite cliche of British politics at the moment. Um, yes. This is helping with like the North or Scotland or Northern Ireland. Just stick with the applications piece for a second because um, I was very intrigued to learn that you can't actually see who applies until it gets to a certain stage. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that and how many oh, companies yeah. have actually got to that stage where you can visibly see who secured the funding? So there are about 1,100 companies in the scheme, right? So they've, they've, they've been given this, this um, what's called a convertible loan. So the way it works is you get this loan. Um, at the moment when, a, when that company later um, uh, raises fresh capital mm. from new investors, that will turn into shares. And that is the moment when the government comes clean about the fact that they've given money to these companies. So of the 1,100 companies, they've only released the names of 158. Yeah. And what we did was we basically went through uh, the filings that the companies had made that were some of which revealed inadvertently or advertently that they had taken the future fund money and we found another 200. So overall, combining what the government's revealed, which is only 158, and our work, which has found another 200, we've got about a third of the companies in the scheme that we can you know, examine and talk about um, but yeah, it's it's weirdly secretive, like peculiarly secretive. Yeah, and then the range of companies are are extremely diverse. I, I I'm looking at the website. My favorite one, perhaps, is that Mina uh, company, which says that it will help people to uh, simplify their their tax claims. Um, and in their advertising, they quotes say that Treasury can be a nightmare to deal with, which is an interesting uh, an interesting prospect, given that the Treasury is involved in actually financing them oh, now. Yeah. Oh, so, there, are couple, there are actually a couple like that actually that, that, that offer to, there's another company called Sugar Cap which, which helps you claim um, helps video game companies claim tax reliefs um, I think if they, it's possible the treasury might make money on the investment and then lose money if that company is successful uh, but, but they, they're really peculiar the range of companies so the, gov- the government's really keen that we talk about Vaxitech which is a you know, really good vaccine company that's been involved in the pandemic response but it's less keen that we talk about, you know, yogurt bar makers or the yacht rental company or the um, vitamin supplement makers or the mail order detergent company. You know, this is the, they, they talk about the future fund as though it's like it's a sort of Silicon Valley fund that's that's, you know, creating a new uh, high tech industries in Britain. But actually, a lot of these companies are just mail order companies that are doing like you know, they're perfectly respectable. They're fine. You know, they're they're doing a good job, and you know, they're they're, they're reasonable businesses, I'm sure. But it's quite weird that, that I don't think anyone would have predicted at the beginning of the pandemic when you heard about this terrible virus ravaging through the country that we'd end up nationalising or part nationalising, um, you know, a yogurt bar maker. That wasn't an obvious outcome from this. No, indeed. You're listening to News Talks, taking stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Chris Cook from the Financial Times. Chris, can we just go back to the the issue you raised earlier, which is that geographical element and where the successful applicants come from? Because when it was presented in the first instance, it was to be, you know, have a, a, a very broad regional reach. But you've detected that a lot of the companies are from a particular postcode in London. Can you talk us through who's actually secured the funding and where they're based? Oh sure. So, so the really striking thing is basically there's a there's a an enormous London bias in the in the data. So we think that um, that that central London accounts for um, nearly uh, half of the half of the spending. Um, it's also really striking when you look beyond London um, that actually there are that the, in Northern Ireland there are we found three companies of the 
of the 358 that we identified, we found three companies, two in Belfast and one outside Belfast, but only in Lisbon, so like eight miles away. Um, and it, all of the companies we found in Scotland were in Edinburgh too. So there's a real problem with the mm. fact that these are not, um, if you like, broad-based um, support for, for for companies across the UK. These are these are quite pocketed companies with inter-specific clusters. And we also, sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon. And the other issue I wanted to look at was the issue of gender diversity. Uh, could you? It doesn't seem to to have been a big part of the deliberation process for either the government or the the private uh, companies involved in this, does it? That's right. That's right. So that we we went through and um, we we I, we pulled out the list of directors of all the companies, and then we and going through that list, we we identified that actually uh, we think eighty seven or eighty eight percent of them are uh, men, um, and a surprisingly large number of the of the companies have have no women at all on their on their boards at the moment. Extraordinary. Um, so just talk to me about where the return for the taxpayer ultimately is in relation to this fund. OK, governments need to support business, particularly in this difficult post-pandemic environment. But like, what, what does the taxpayer ultimately get back from the Exchequer? So there are two ways of, of, of thinking about this, right? So the, the first was Britain has a pipeline of high-tech companies, small startup companies that it needed to preserve. And it was important to create an environment where they, where the pipeline wasn't, if you like, disrupted. So there wasn't a sort of years gap when there were no one was making progression from a sort of certain stage in their business. Um, so just as we don't, you know, so so just as we we expect central banks to sort of lend freely during a crisis um, against whatever collateral financial institutions can come forward with, you basically need to just keep the show on the road and keep lending because you don't know what damage it will do if you let a sort of tranche mm. of businesses fail. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, it's really hard to work out what the, if you like, the true impact of a scheme like this is. But the hope will be that um, the, the officials we spoke to when we were preparing our article, we reckoned about half of these companies, the UK government would end up taking stock indirectly because they would hold a new equity raise and they would end up owning shares as a result. And we also thought that that um, they think that of of the the remainder, some of them they will just basically ask for the money back on what are actually really onerous terms. A minimum eight percent potentially mm. uh, interest plus a hundred percent redemption fee if they don't manage to turn the um, if they ask for the money back. Um, they're really driving the company to try and raise new new shares and then take shares in the company. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with the, the other half, say, if that's what happens, you know, if, if they end up not being able to convert. Um, but the, the idea was basically they want one or two real stars to take off and then they will, um, they'll sell shares in those. There are some quite, there's some quite sp- um, sparky companies they're going to hope are going to do really well and then that will basically pay for the scheme. And is there anything that you spotted looking through these companies that you think has real potential? Well, some of them are really interesting companies and some of them I, I don't think are going to be, you know, unicorns they've got no prospect mm. I, I think with the greater respect to the to the uh the uh people selling yogurt bars or right? i mean i think it's a really sound and robust business it's not amazon right mm-hmm. but the um there are some of them that are quite interested the one that the treasury themselves have, have said to me they think is interesting is onto which is a uh, an electric car subscription club mm. So basically, the way it works is you pay something like I don't know what the real the quite the the right number is, but something like three hundred fifty pounds a month, and that is your insurance plus you get a car, and it's a sort of subscription for a car. It's kind of um, leasing really, but the it's a short term lease, so you can cancel it 
bit, you know, short notice. And they're really hopeful, basically, this might be a driver of the adoption of electric cars and actually might be an, end up being quite important if they can get the if they can get the pricing right. Yeah, as you say, there's some very interesting um, businesses in the the fund, but I think when your your what you've uncovered and the transparency issues around it are are a little bit concerning. Do you think that um, the pandemic has allowed governments to sort of do things like this without the proper governance structures attached to them? So th- this is quite a peculiar case because they've they've said that they're doing it on they, because the government is only matching the terms used by private investors they've made the argument there's no state aid here um so that's why that they they've been able to sort of say um we're not going to release stuff because lots of the other things that the uk government have done um lots of loan schemes things like that are basically state aid so they've had to actually declare all of that stuff um up front mm. um because they have to get it cleared um Still covered by you know some provisions of the of the European State Aid Regimen, um, so so in some senses it's it's a it's unusual partly because it's being done on these weird commercial terms, mm. um, but but we really aren't going to know a lot about um, it's going to take a while to figure out what's actually been going on. We've already spotted, I and mean, I know some of my colleagues spotted that there was a basically um, I have to be careful what I say, but <laughs> but there was a a company that appeared to um, suddenly decided it had a lot of employees that needed employment support um, out of the middle of nowhere um, and uh, claimed several, like tens of millions of pounds in a month or so mm. um, in order to to um, take advantage of one of those schemes. Like there, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a long tail of us discovering people abuse some of these schemes. Well, there you go. A government sponsored Dragon's Den. I'm sure many Irish businesses will be looking at this and wondering when Ireland might get its own future fund. But for now, we leave it there. That's Chris Cook from the Financial Times. Thank you for joining us. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there's extended conversations with our guests today. And my thanks to those guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan with Stephen McLuhan on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with News Talks on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. Busy day ahead. Why not save time and shop online at supervalue.ie? Let our expert pickers do the shopping for you. And our helpful drivers deliver it when you get home. Download the SuperValue app now or shop online at supervalue.ie.